We're going to be in Exodus chapter 4, chapters 3 and 4 actually today. If you'd like to turn there, it's page 47 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. As you're turning there, Pastor Stephen already mentioned this, but let me as well mention Advent is coming up. Advent is the four Sundays that come prior to, to Christmas Sunday or Christmas Day. Uh, so Advent for us begins this year on Sunday, December 3rd, two weeks from today. And we'll be walking through this book by Sinclair Ferguson, The Dawn of Redeeming Grace. Uh, inside this book is 25 different devotionals that will walk you through uh, the month of December through the Advent uh, as you prepare your hearts for Christmas. And we just want to encourage you to pick one of these up. Uh, there's, a, there's enough, I think, for one to two per family uh, to walk through, maybe in your family devotions or just together as a couple to walk through and to read through these devotions and prepare your heart. We will also then on Sunday mornings, we'll be taking some of the themes from this from this devotional and sharing those on Sunday morning as well. So I'd encourage you to pick those up. They're on a table out there in the foyer. We would love to have you take one of these home with you or a couple of them home with you if you'd like for the Advent season. Today, uh, we're jumping back into Exodus. We, uh, we've been walking through Exodus this fall and, and slowly doing it. Last week, we celebrated Thanksgiving together, and uh, we, I'm so grateful for those that shared last week and the time that we were able to celebrate together last week. And today we jump back into Exodus chapter 3. So Exodus so far, the story that we have looked at here in these first three chapters of Exodus, has, has set itself up in what seems like a showdown between Pharaoh and Moses. And we've said that a couple times as we've walked through this. It looks like Pharaoh at the beginning in chapters 1 and 2, Pharaoh is, is plotting and scheming. Pharaoh is, is oppressing and enslaving. Pharaoh is is killing, literally having babies killed. Pharaoh is the ultimate of the bad guys, and God has been preparing, it looks like, or, or somehow Moses has been being prepared. He's, he's been born and, and rescued by his, by his mother. He's been put into an ark and floated down the Nile and brought into Pharaoh's family, even raised right in Pharaoh's own home by Pharaoh's daughter, Moses has, has been trained as an Egyptian and, and yet still understands the Hebrew ways because his mother, his birth mother, is able to care for him and watch over him. And, and so there's this showdown that's happening, and we can see it taking place in, in Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2. We see that Moses versus Pharaoh, it's going to happen, it's going to come. And then at the end of chapter 2, we've looked at this a couple times, but at the end of chapter 2, it says that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And in chapter 2, verse 24, it says, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And it's at that point that we realize that this showdown is not between Pharaoh and Moses. This whole story, this whole book that we're looking at here in Exodus, this entire thing is not about Pharaoh. It's not about Moses. It's not about the Israelites. This whole story is about God. 
It's about God. And God begins to show himself then in chapter three. Moses is out. Moses has, has, has tried to, uh, to rescue the Israelites in his own power and in his own strength. Uh, he, he came out one day, saw an, a, an Egyptian beating on the Israelite and, and rescued that Israelite, killed the Egyptian, buried him, came out the next day, came to the Israelites and, and two Israelites were arguing and he, he tried to put a stop to it and they said, are you going to kill us too? Who made you? the ruler over us. And Moses flees for his life, runs out into the wilderness and spends the next 40 years in the wilderness. He's 80 years old at this point that you come to chapter three in Exodus. He's 80 years old when all of a sudden he looks across in the desert and sees a bush that's on fire. It's on fire, but it does not burn up. It's not being consumed by the fire. And so Moses wanders over to check out this bush. And in the midst of that comes face to face, face to bush at least, with the angel of the Lord, with God there in that bush. And God begins to show Moses who he really is. And we've walked through that a little bit, that God shows Moses that he is unrivaled, that there is no one that can do what he does. That our God is a personal God, that knows his name and calls him by name from the burning bush. That he is a holy God and that Moses is standing on holy ground. But he's a living God and has been all throughout, even before human history. And even more than that, that God is a saving and a rescuing God. That God sees our afflictions, that he hears our cries, that God knows our sufferings, and not only does he see and hear and know, but he comes down to rescue his people. And here he's calling Moses to do that. He calls Moses to be the rescuer of his chosen people, of the Israelite people. And then, as we looked just a couple weeks ago, Moses comes, he sees the burning bush, he, this unrivaled, personal, holy, living, saving, rescuing God has made, this, has made this appearance in a burning bush. He's made this pronouncement to Moses. He says, you're going to go, you're going to rescue my people, you're going to bring them out of Egypt and rescue them from their oppression, from their slavery. And Moses hears all of this, hears this announcement, hears this command, really, from God and Moses says, who am I to do this? Who am I that you have called me to do this? God shows up and shows Moses exactly who he is. And Moses immediately turns it to himself. Who am I in the midst of this? I shared with you last week or two weeks ago as we walked through this passage that there's lots of reasons why Moses is the one. Moses has a, has a, has a compassionate heart and, a, and an empathetic heart to the Israelite people. Moses understands the Hebrew people and he understands the Egyptian people. He, he, he's in a unique spot that no one else is. Moses is the perfect guy for the job. And God should, could have, God could have said to Moses, Moses, this is the reason why I've chosen you. I've been working, I've been, I, I pre-selected you. We rescued you even there at the Nile when your mother put you in the ark. You're the guy for the job. He could have encouraged him and built up his self-esteem. He could have said, Moses, I believe in you. You can do it. 
But that's not God's approach. It's not God's approach to Moses, and it's not God's approach in general. What Moses hears, what Moses hears instead is not, you can do it, and I believe in you, Moses. What he hears instead is, I will be with you, God says. God says, this is not about you, Moses. This is not about your training. It's not about your readiness. It's not about your worth or your worthiness of this call. It's not about even your innate goodness and your heart of compassion and the empathy that you have for the Israelites. This is not about you at all, but this is all about me. I will be with you. And Moses responds. His first response is, who am I? And then Moses responds, well, if this really is about, about you, who are you? Who, who am I? He says, who am I supposed to tell them called me? And again, God responds by revealing, making more of himself known to Moses and to us as we read it. God responds with his name to Moses. Moses says, who, who can I say that you are? And he says, my name is I am who I am, or I be who I be. And I have always been, he says. God says, I have always been, and I always will be. I have always been, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I will act in a way that is consistent with who I have been. And I am right now who I will be. I'm self, God is self-defining rather than shaped by any other. He is who he is, and he will be who he will be. God will determine the future, and God will be all that matters in the future. This passage helps us to see that the God of the patriarchs in the past is going to liberate his people in the present and to give them the promised land in the future. I am who I am. God says to Moses, tell them that I am has sent me to you. He says, this is not about who you are, Moses. This is not about what your title is. I am has sent you. I am will be with you. Your value, your worth, your readiness, your ability, all of those things, God says, are dependent upon me. It all comes back to me and I am who I am. And so we continue on in that story as Moses has this encounter with God at the burning bush. We're going to continue on in chapter 4, but I want to back up just a little bit just so we can see it and understand it in context. I want to start in chapter 3, starting in verse 16. This is, the, this is the calling that God has put onto Moses. Starting in verse 16 of chapter 3. Go, gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. 
But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters and you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then in chapter 4, then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. And so he put out his hand and caught it and became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you will speak. And he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and you, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses continues here in chapter 4 with the same posture that he had in chapter 3. Moses continues to give excuses. He continues to turn the focus on himself. He continues to make it all about him and not about God. God has already said, I will be with you. I am who I am. He's he's already spelled out who he is and the name that Moses is to use. And yet Moses continues to turn it back on himself. Here in chapter 4, Moses says, but behold, they will not believe me or they will not listen to my voice. For they, will, they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Even here, Moses is rem- remembering, I think, that past interaction that we saw in chapter 2. Where the Israelites said, who, who made you ruler over us? Who are you to do this? For 40 years, Moses has been wandering around in the desert remembering that. He's had that recollection. He's, he's remembered standing there and, and thinking he was doing what was right, thinking that he was doing what God had called him to do, thinking that he was rescuing the Hebrew people. And that their response back to him was, 
Who made you the ruler over us? So even now, as he's remembering that, he doesn't forget. He reminds himself of it all of the time, I think. And he says, they're not going to believe me. They're not going to listen to my voice. They're going to say, the Lord did not appear to you. I need more than just knowing your name. I need more than just seeing this burning bush. I need to know, and I need to be able to prove it, he says. And so God begins to give Moses some signs. He gives him three signs here immediately right away or shares with him three signs. The first is is he asks him what's in his hand. Moses replies, a staff. Every good shepherd, every good shepherd has a staff. You know, you've seen the pictures of the staff, the long stick with with the crook on the end of it. We don't know exactly what Moses' staff looked like, but you have a bit of a picture of what the shepherd's staff looked like. Every good shepherd had a tool like a staff. He uses it all, all through his, his shepherding of the sheep. He uses it to, to help him as he walks as a walking stick. He uses it to help direct the sheep where he needs them to go. He, he uses it as a weapon to fend off any kind of creatures that would be coming to steal or to harm the sheep. The staff was the main tool of the shepherd, and Moses was pretty familiar with it after wandering through and taking care of the sheep for these last 40 or so years that he's been in the desert. It was the one thing that he knew he could trust. It was the one thing that he knew how to use and operate. It was the thing that he knew how to control the sheep with. He was familiar with his staff. And God says, take your staff and throw it on the ground. And as he does... This staff, this tool, this weapon, this thing that he is is intimately familiar with has carried with him over miles and miles of ground for hours and hours and days and days. Throws it on the ground and it becomes a snake. And Moses, it's almost comical as you read it, he throws it on the ground and it becomes a serpent and what does Moses do? He runs from it. That'd be what I would do. I would, I'm not a snake lover. And I would run from it as well because, because you, you probably, I, I don't think when he throws it down, it doesn't become one of those little tiny garter snakes that run around that we see oftentimes here in our area. In fact, some commentators would say that the snake probably was a full-size, full-grown cobra kind of snake. And the reason, the reason we think that, the reason that they, would, that they would say that, it goes back to what we've already talked about with Pharaoh. Do you remember when, when I, I showed you some of these pictures earlier, but Pharaoh hit the common picture of Pharaoh's headdress. What we know from history is that the center of Pharaoh's headdress is a snake, a cobra kind of snake. He represents the serpent. And God is saying here to Moses, God is saying here to Moses, your staff has become this snake. Not a small garter snake, but a full size probably, cobra kind of snake. And Moses sees it and runs like a schoolgirl or like Pastor Jason. And God, God says to Moses, says, reach out and catch this snake 
And what does he say? He gives him a specific way that he's supposed to catch the snake. Reach out, catch the snake by the tail. Now again, I, I don't play with snakes. I don't at all. But I'm pretty confident in my snake understanding that you do not catch snakes by the tail because that leaves their mouth able to whip around and to do whatever it wants to do. And God gives Moses a specific instruction, reach out, grab this snake by the tail. We already know Moses is afraid. He's already run off. And so Moses comes back and listens to God and has to do all of these mental gymnastics to get over his fear, the natural fear that he has of a snake, coupled with the supernatural fear of what he has seen by throwing his staff on the ground. And now this snake has appeared. And he has to reach out and he has to grab it by the place that he would have no control whatsoever. And he grabs the snake by the tail and it returns and becomes a staff again. What's God showing Moses in this sign? What's he trying to tell Moses in this sign? I think the picture that God is trying to paint for Moses is that this tool that you have used, this staff that you have used over and over to to, to control the sheep and to fend off those that are coming against you, to, to lead them, to guide them, to draw them back, to prod them. This tool that you have used in control, this tool that you know, this thing that you have used to keep order and to keep control becomes a wild snake that you have no control over. And my instructions to you, God says, are not to grab it behind the head where you can pinch it and keep its fangs from getting hold of you. It's to release all control, to grab it by the tail, and to hold on, and I will show my glory in that. And Moses does exactly that, and God turns it back in to a staff and says, Moses, you will have control over the scariest of snakes, over the worst of serpents. You have control. That snake, that pharaoh, that leader with the snake on his headdress is nothing more than a staff for me. I will use that to control. I will use that for my glory. He continues on with signs. He says, take your hand and put your hand, put your hand inside, inside your cloak. And when he does, he pulls it out and it's leprous. It's easy, I think, to see this sign as a, as a sign that God has control over sickness and disease. I think that's the obvious picture that we begin to see, that God is con- in control of all things. He can, turn, he can turn wooden staffs into dangerous snakes. He can turn perfectly fine hands into diseased hands. But, but I think the picture is even, even more than that. I think the picture of, of, of the leprosy is, is, is one of the worst of all diseases. There was no cure for leprosy during the time of Moses. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a horrible disease that was, was super contagious, and it was, you were unable to be healed from it, and it slowly spread over all of your body. 
taking over more and more and more of who you are. And I'm sure that as Moses saw that, he began to understand that. He began to fear that. And God was showing he had control over that disease. But, but even more than that, the wording, the wording that God uses here to say, put your hand inside your cloak, is more than just put your hand in your pocket or put your hand inside your, your, the front of your coat. The, the, the phrase, put your hand inside your cloak, was, was to reach all the way inside all of your clothes, to put your hand against the flesh of your chest, to reach all the way in. I, I suspect he probably reached all the way inside all of his clothes and put the flesh of his hand over the flesh of his chest right over his heart. And then pulls it out. And it's diseased. Not just a little diseased, but white, like snow. The leprosy has so taken over his hand that it's completely consumed. And I think God is saying to Moses, even here, inside, your very heart is diseased. Your very heart, your very being has a sickness which you don't have any control over. That there is something that's inside of you. There is something inside of you, this attitude, this, this, this heart, the soul inside of you is diseased. It's afflicted. And says, put your hand back inside your cloak against your heart. And he pulls it out again and it's been healed. And God says, even the very sickness that's inside of you, I'm in charge of that as well. I'm in control of that as well. The affliction, the selfishness, the sinfulness of who you are on the inside, I'm in charge of that as well. God continues to show Moses over and over that he is in charge. He tells him, too, about a third sign, which he doesn't actually, I don't think Moses actually sees it here, but he says, if they don't believe the staff, if they don't believe your hand, he says, go and take water out of the Nile, get a bucket of water from the Nile River, and you'll throw it on the dry ground, and it will no longer be water, but instead will become blood. The Nile, for the Egyptians, the Nile, for the nation of Egypt, was the lifeblood, everything they, they survived. Everything survived because of the water of the Nile. The Nile River makes that part of Egypt more than just the desert that you have in that northern part of Africa. It's because of the Nile that they have life. It's because of the Nile that they have any ability to live there. It's because of the Nile that they can have livestock. It's because of the Nile that they can have crops. It's because of the Nile that they have life. And God is showing here that the very thing the very thing that comes, the very life that you have that comes from the Nile, I'm in charge of that as well. And it turns into blood, a preview even of one of the plagues that is to come. God says, this staff, this tool that you use for control, I control that. And I can turn it into the snake and turn it back into a staff. This very heart of yours, I control that. The affliction that comes 
inside of you and even the things that you turn to for life, the thing that you go to for life, I am in charge and in control of that as well. God is showing to Moses, this will be about me. It is not about you, Moses. This is all about me. Every part of this is going to be about me. He said this to Moses a number of times already. Who am I, Moses says. He says, I'll be with you. He says, who are you? I am who I am. What if they don't believe me, Moses says. Show them these signs, God says. And so Moses finally says, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. We don't know exactly what slow of speech and of tongue means. There's, there's a couple of, of possibilities, probably. Commentators tell us that, he, that Moses could have, could have actually had a, a, a stutter. He might have had a stammering tongue or some kind of, of lisp, some kind of, of impediment that, that made it hard for him to speak. That's totally possible that Moses would have had that. It's also... It's also entirely possible, some would say, that when he says he is slow of speech and of tongue, that he is not eloquent either in the past or since. That what what Moses is saying is, I have a fear. I have a fear of speaking. I have a a fear of public speaking. I am afraid to get in front. I am afraid to go before Pharaoh. I am afraid to go before the leader, the king. I'm afraid. I'm scared. And I think you and I can resonate with that, right? Fear of public speaking, that's one of the top fears that people have. You understand what it means to be afraid. You understand what it means to be consumed by fear and nervousness when you have to get up in front of someone. Fear of public speaking is a pretty pretty universal fear for most of us. And Moses is saying to God, I am afraid I hear what you're saying. I see the signs. I understand what your name is. I know you will be with me, but God, I am still afraid. I'm still afraid. And God's response to Moses, verse 11, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Go, thou therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you but you shall speak. God says to Moses, I know, I know your fears. I know everything about you. Who made your mouth? If it's a stutter or a stammer that Moses has, God is saying, I know all about it. I know exactly the way that you speak. I know exactly how your lips move and your teeth form words. I know exactly how your tongue works. And in fact, he even very specific, it's not a generic, I will be with you. God says to Moses, I will be with your mouth. I will be with you. You don't need to be afraid. I know everything about you. I made you. And I will be with the very parts of you that need to work. I will be with your mouth and I will teach you what you should speak. Moses has heard it all. God has has called him. God has has told him who he will be. God has given him these signs with his his staff and with his hand and, and proclaimed this with the Nile River. 
God says, I, will, I know you're afraid, but I will be with your mouth. And so Moses, Moses at this point should say, fine, God, I hear it. I know that you've called me. I know that you want me to go. Moses should finally say, fine, what is the next step? But that's not Moses' reply. Moses' reply finally is, I've given all my reasons. I've given all my excuses. I don't have anything left. And so, oh, my Lord, please just send someone else. You can hear it, right? You can feel it, right? Just send someone else. I hear what you're saying. I I know that you have an answer for every excuse that I have, but I don't want to do it. I can't do it. I won't do it. Just send someone else. To this point, God has responded to every one of Moses' calls. I will be with you. I am who I am. Watch these signs. See the way that I am at work in control. I will be with your mouth, he says to Moses. And here... In verse 14, it says, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. The anger of the Lord. This is the response that God gives to Moses here. The anger of the Lord is, rises up against Moses from God. Moses has come to the place where God has called him. God has said, I'll be with you. God has explained who he is. He's given him the signs. He's he's been very specific. I will be with your mouth. And Moses says, just send someone else. And the anger of God rises up because Moses was not doing what God had called him to do. There's this part in this walk that Moses has where, where Moses says, who am I to do? And he says, God says, it doesn't matter who you are. I will be with you. He says, well, who are you? I, I am who I am. These are the signs. All of these things have, have shown God's power. And finally, there comes this point where Moses is to do what God has called him to do. And he says, I'm, I don't want to do it. Call somebody else. Just send someone else. And the anger of the Lord rises up against him. He says, Moses, you, you have a part in this. I've called you to do this. I will be with you to do it. I've gone before you and I will come behind you. I've prepared all of these things for you. I control every part of it. I've shown you that with the staff and with your hand. I, I am in charge of all things and I've made all of these things work together for you. You have to do your part And Moses rejects it and runs from it and says, oh, my Lord, send someone else. It's true for many of us as well. We we know the call that God has has given to us. We know the call that he has, has, has put on our lives. We've responded. We But we don't want to always do our part. He's called us. He he works in us. He strengthens us. He helps us. But he also calls us to do, to work, to become more and more like him. And too often we want to shirk our responsibility. Too often we want to run from what we've been called to do. Too often we want to throw up our hands and say, 
oh my God, just please send someone else. I can't do it. I won't do it. I don't want to do it. The anger of the Lord rises up against Moses. But in God's grace and in his mercy, he says, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? God rises, or God, God, the anger of the Lord is kindled against Moses, but in his grace and in his mercy, he says, Moses, I know that you don't want to do it. I know that you're saying you won't do it, that you can't do it, so I've called someone else to help you. I've called another. Not just I've called another, but I've already had this plan from the beginning. He's already on his way. Aaron, your brother, is going to come. He's going to help you. He, he will speak for you. The question, I think, is, as you see this, is why doesn't, why doesn't God just use Aaron in the first place? Why go through all of this with Moses when, when he knows that Aaron is, or why doesn't he have Aaron come earlier and show up at the burning bush with Moses so the two of them can get these instructions together and understand that they're going to work through it together? Why does he go through all of this with Moses if he's got Aaron coming anyway? I don't know the answer all to that. But I'm confident in this, that God's glory will be and is better seen through the cooperative work of Moses and Aaron together. That those two brothers together will bring about and show and declare God's glory to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians and to the Hebrew people. God says, you can't, you won't. And so I've called someone else to come along and help you through your weakness. Worship team's gonna come this morning. This is not the last time, though, in Scripture. This is not the last time that God calls for another. When we rise up and say, I can't do it, I won't do it. I'm unable to do it. I'm too scared. I'm too focused on myself. I'm too lost. There's one, Scripture tells us, that God has sent for, has called, who's closer than a brother. One who walks right alongside us, who speaks on our behalf and prays and intercedes For us, there is one who has completed the work that we couldn't do. There's one who has sent the Spirit to strengthen and enable and encourage us for the work that we are called to do. God has called for another in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became that one who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead became obedient to death on a cross for you and I. Our hope today is not in our ability to do it on our own. It's not even in the training that's gone on before us. Our hope this morning is found in the person of Jesus. He made a way for us, and we have hope today because God did send another. And Jesus has made a way for us this morning. Our hope is in him. Stand with me.
as we sing today. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. Where is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good, God is good. Where is His grace and goodness known? In the great Redeemer's blood Who holds our faith when fears arise Who stands above the stormy trial Who sends the waves that bring us nigh Unto the shore, the rock of Christ Oh, sin, Springs eternal, oh sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Unto the grave, what will we sing? Christ he lives. Christ he lives, and what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him, there we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed, and we will feast in endless joy. When Christ is ours forevermore. Oh, sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Christ our hope in life and death. 
now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Our benediction today comes from Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning.